1: A lot's changed in the last couple of Well,
0: weeks. the outlooks that we had at the end of the year are basically useless like all the outlooks Bill Gross wrote over the years. Let's migrate on that, chad to a conversation with one William Gross, former PIMCO co-CIO that Barely Describes His Contribution to Bond Investment. He's put out a book which is hugely readable. I wasn't sure what to expect from the stamp collector. I'm still standing, has a lot of smart notes in it, and some extremely frank talk about his turmoil of the recent years. Bill Gross, um, thank you so much. I love the idea in the beginning of the book, there never was a Bond King. I met you the first time at the Waldorf Astoria, and you were almost in tears because you got the Bond market wrong. I can't remember, Bill, if it was price up, yield down, or yields up, price down, but you blew it. on a At that, at that time, you completely blew it. What did you get right that made you the so-called
2: bond king? Well, I, I, I think, Tom, that I, I uh, from an early stage, I wrote a book called The uh, you know, the long-term secular view of financial markets. And um, it seemed to me that if, you know, it could eliminate human emotion, which is uh, what you just talked about on a day-to-day basis, that uh, if you look three to five years out and had a, a intelligent forecast as to the direction of inflation um, and the economy, then you'd have a better chance. Not, not that you'd terribly succeed, but you'd have a better chance. And so I think the... The secular outlook at PIMCO, which was three to five years, was key uh, going forward.
0: You are in Indian Wells. There's a small tennis tournament there uh, this week, which will be of great uh, interest to those that follow tennis. And part of it is getting the ball in play and putting the ball back and forth across the net. You started out in the mailroom at PIMCO. How did you get the ball moving on the PIMCO tennis court starting out in the mailroom? Mm
2: -hmm. Well, we had a a billion dollar portfolio Pacific Mutual did. It wasn't PIMCO at the time. And uh, I just graduated from UCLA Anderson. I had a master's degree. I was clipping coupons, Um, not exactly in the mailroom, but clipping coupons. And uh, I I said to myself, uh, wouldn't it be better to get out of the vault and into the sunshine and and maybe you could trade these bonds? Um, You know, back then there weren't uh, computers. IBM had a 360, et cetera. Um, you couldn't really move them back and forth except physically. And so most banks and most insurance companies didn't. And so I, I thought that if I could take 5 million of that uh, $1 billion portfolio and trade it and perform, then we could get some clients and grow a little investment company called Primco.
3: A little investment company that grew uh, quite large. Bill, you talk also about your start just even with education, with $200 sewn into your pants, uh, going to Las Vegas, gambling and getting $10,000 to pay for your college education. Parlay that gambling to the markets and how the game has changed. How much has the game changed over your your
2: tenure? Well, it's changed a lot. Uh, you know, since I, st- uh, when I started, uh, there weren't really liquid. Uh, mortgage pass throughs. Uh, There certainly wasn't interest in foreign bonds. Uh, There weren't any tips, inflation protected securities, et cetera, et cetera. And so that and the evolution of financial futures, which is probably the biggest change, you know, introduced liquidity into the marketplace and it allowed for even a small firm at the time like PIMCO uh, to, to basically trade and to make money uh, financial futures back in the day were cheap 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 and we could buy a, a Treasury bond through the financial futures market and turn a at the time a 10% yield into a 12% yield and. Uh, The first mover advantage for PIMCO uh, in terms of all of these categories was quite critical as well.
3: Bill, the reason why I ask is because we're in an era where a lot of people talk about the distortions in the bond markets by the Federal Reserve, where the Fed is prepared to start moving back from some of their support from their bond purchases. Today marks the last day of those uh, pandemic era purchases, at Mm -hmm. least the expansion. How much can the bond market really give the same kinds of messages uh, as it did back when you started out clipping coupons?
2: Well, certainly not as much. There's there's more involvement uh, by almost all central banks, uh, despite the pullback mm-hmm. that you mentioned um, occurring today. And, um, you know, interest rates are so artificially low that, that it's hard for uh, INSTITUTIONAL INVESTORS OR EVEN uh, INDIVIDUAL AND PRIVATE INVESTORS TO to MAKE MUCH OF A DIFFERENCE. CENTRAL BANKS uh, CONTROL THE MARKET. Um, I, I THINK THEY'RE TERRIBLY WRONG IN TERMS OF WHAT THEY'VE DONE, STAYED SO LOW FOR SO LONG. Uh, AND NOW WE HAVE INFLATION, NOT NECESSARILY BECAUSE OF THOSE POLICIES, BUT PROBABLY IN A uh, LARGE PART BECAUSE OF THEM. AND so it, um, it it's just a difficult market. You you try and anticipate the central banks, which has been uh, relatively easy in the past few years because they haven't done anything. But now they're uh, about to move, and it's simply a question of what Powell and others. Um, do in terms of the policy rate. Uh,
0: Bill Gross, I've been out to Newport to see your Monroe Trader on your desk of long ago and far away where you calculated convexity like no one that could do it. And part of the, as you mentioned, the first mover advantage of PIMCO was intellect. I want you to speak about what you and Dr. Al Arian did. When the two of you got together and put intellect first for a buy-side house Every single buy side shop had to react and pattern themselves against what you and Mohammed invented. Tell us how you put intellect first at your PIMCO.
2: Well, we, we did build a, a, a small company, then a larger company of very smart people. And um, it, it wasn't just myself and uh, and Mohammed. Mohammed came much later. PIMCO was very much a success before Mohammed, but uh, Paul McCulley. Uh, was very key in terms of Fed policy and anticipating the Great Recession. Uh, Chris Dianus was very important in terms of bringing financial futures to the company. Um, There were lots of others that uh, Mm -hmm. were innovators, that were mild risk takers. And, um, you know, putting together a group of bond kings and uh, later queens was quite important.
0: Was the challenges that you had later in your career, and I don't want to get into the soap opera of it, But, Bill Gross, were the challenges that you had, like at so many other shops, due to the decline in profitability of the buy side? It used to be a cozy job, Bill. You'd show up for two hours. Then you'd go pay golf, trying to get your handicap up. And, And that, Bill, the buy side, you know, every single buy side story is about lower and lower and lower revenue and squeezed margin. Is that what you ran into later in your career?
2: Well, that, that's what I was advocating in the bond market. There was this um, uh, extension of, uh, of trading into ETFs and into um, vehicles that charged lower and lower and lower fees. I I sense that as a trade, as a um, as a I sense it as a trend uh, because simply as interest rates themselves. Lowered, went down to five, four, three, two, one. Um, you know, you couldn't charge 50 basis points on a one percent uh, 10-year Treasury. That's half of the uh, half of the yield, and it was almost an egregious type of uh, of, of situation. And so, um, you know, fees became important. It uh, became important in terms of my leaving Pimco because the the surviving contingent basically wanted higher yield uh, products, hedge fund types of products, and I wanted to stick to the old total return formula that had done so well.
3: The total return formula is in a very tenuous moment simply because of where yields are and where inflation is expected to be. Some people consider Jeff Gunlock your uh, successor when it comes to the Bond King uh, moniker. Uh, You may disagree, others do. The question I have is, do you agree with his uh, prognostications of a 10% inflation rate this year and the likelihood that the Fed is vastly behind the curve?
2: Well, the latter, yes. Uh, you know, a, a 10% inflation rate is uh, problematic. We'll see a little bit of it tomorrow. And it depends, of course, on commodity prices, oil prices, and, uh, you know, the wage follow-on. But I, I do think inflation will be in a 4 to 5% category for the next several years. And, and does that Validate a ten-year at 180 or 85. It does not. Um, does it mean that there'll be a huge amount of sellers uh, because of the lack of Fed buying? Um, yeah, you know, probably not. Uh, you know, as we've seen in the last few weeks, Treasuries are a safe haven, much like gold, and so uh, investors are content to. Stay- Stick at 1.8% until uh, the coast clears. I, I do think, though, that uh, you know bonds are a risky investment here. Durations are very, very, very low, as low as almost they've ever been. And so, when uh, inflation is accepted in the marketplace at four to five percent, which I think it might, um, then bonds uh, are a sale. And you know, once we get above uh, on the ten-year, once we get above uh, 2.15. Um, I, I think there's substantial risk. There's a, if you give me just one second, there's a long term trend, um, a 35 year downward trend in terms of the 10 year and the 30 year um, that hasn't been broken. It's one of the most in- amazing trend lines that exist in financial markets. And right now, the 10 year at 215 would break. Uh, the downward trend for 35 years. And so I I think that's critical, but I think it will happen.
3: So you do think that that trend will be broken, but do you think uh, that we're going to escape the negative real yield vortex, or do you think that that's going to persist?
2: Well, it might in certain areas. I mean, there are Less, fewer and fewer uh, negative yielding bonds. I think we're down to four trillion as opposed to 15 trillion, and the the German ten-year is up at uh, a magnificent eight basis points this morning. Um, so um, I I think ultimately we we have to, as a uh, finance-based global economy, negative interest rates are definitely a negative, a detriment to uh, to economic. GROWTH BECAUSE THEY ENCOURAGE um, OR DISCOURAGE SAVERS, uh, WHICH IS THE the THRUST OF INVESTMENT. IF YOU DON'T HAVE SAVINGS, YOU DON'T HAVE INVESTMENT. AND um, TO A CERTAIN EXTENT, IF YOU STAY DOWN THERE IN NEGATIVE TERRITORY, INVESTORS WILL PUT SOME OF THAT MONEY uh, INTO A MATTRESS AND IT DOESN'T DO very well in terms of productivity in a mattress.
0: We're going to continue with Bill Gross. He's going to stay with us with his new ebook out. I'm still standing. Uh, right now, and it, more timely perhaps because of the invasion of Ukraine, it is a launch of SpaceX. They're preparing uh, that right now. This is SpaceX Falcon 9. It is the launch of 48 Starlink satellites. So and you've got to You've got to believe that it has somehow changed off of Cape Canaveral than it would have been, Lisa, 13 or 14 days ago. Well,
3: and actually this is important because it comes at a time when we do have this dominance of the tracking of a lot of individuals through their phones, which is part of how Ukraine actually got ahead of Russia and even tracked tanks. There was an anecdote that actually they could tell where the tanks were because Google Maps was saying that there was a lot of traffic there. So these satellites are integral in the way that we understand the world, and they were operating, and it is a new regime.
0: This will be a number of minutes here of a launch, and then 56 minutes in is when we would see uh, a deployment. Make that one hour, 65 minutes in, we'll see the deployment of the Starlink. At satellites. We'll leave Cape Canaveral right now. For all of you on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television, someone who's been of a great support to us over the years, one William Gross, Always and Forever, of his PIMCO and, of course, tenure at Janus as well, out with a wonderful new book. Uh, Bill Gross, there is a hilarious moment in the book, and I'm not surprised because I've tried to fire you at least three times. Uh-huh. Lou Rue Kaiser went after you on Wall Street week and said... Who is this young Turk? Get rid of him. How did Lou Rukeyser fire Bill Gross?
2: Well, we always had a question as panelists. Uh, and uh, my question was about the fiscal deficit and uh, expanding. And so I thought I'd be cute and bring a rubber band into the uh, studio and fire it at uh, Lou's ear when I talked about an expanding fiscal Deficit. I did that. I, it was a good shot. Um, missed his ear. Uh, he smiled and uh, uh, went on in the conversation. But clearly yeah. uh, was very miffed. And at the end, uh, he yeah. had his producer farmy. It didn't take long.
0: An important question. I know Lisa and I have talked about this before. The parlor game of Fed guessing. You've been a pinata on this. Sometimes you've got it right. Sometimes you've got it wrong. Sometimes it's what you believe in and not so much what you think the Fed will actually do. I get it. Is there value to the modern Fed watching what I call the Fed parlor game?
2: Well, I think there still is, uh, you know, debating whether it's a quarter or, or 50 basis points may not have been of, uh, or may not be of too much value. But um, if if you can analyze the, the Fed's rather longer term moves in terms of 12, 24, 36 months, then that's the critical judge, judgment and that becomes very difficult uh, politically and uh, otherwise. So I I still think since central banks control the market, uh, you wanna try and guess um, what uh, Powell and others are thinking in in terms of uh, interest rate hikes. And so, yes, I'd say listen closely.
3: Well, especially at a time when you think that the trend is going to be broken, the downward trend of yields uh, that we had experienced for decades. At what point do you think that investors should look to just break even on an inflation-adjusted basis rather than actually get returns from financial instruments the way they've become accustomed to?
2: Well, if you're talking about Tips or uh, on an in general,
3: because I think that there's been this feeling where you were talking about investing in riskier assets to try to get bigger returns for the likes of pension funds and foundations, and you have a lot of big investors coming out and saying, "Look, you got to lower your expectations in order to not just lose your shirt in really risky assets." What's your view?
2: Yeah, correct. I I I think going forward, and I've said this for a, a few years now, and obviously not with the fangs and uh, the high flyers, it hasn't been the case. They've done very well until the last few months. But I, I think an investor uh, can really only expect five to six percent going forward. Um, you know, these are days in which interest rates will be rising. They'll be pressuring corporate profit margins. They'll be affecting the housing market and slowing the economy down. Um there's less liquidity in the marketplace and and so um you know a five to six percent return instead of a ten banger like Peter Lynch uh, used to call it, or even ten to twenty percent which most millennials um and new investors think they deserve um it's is probably a pretty good number
3: Bill, if you were restarting your career now, which asset class would you choose as having the most promise <laughs>
2: Well, not bonds, Um, you know, uh, probably commodities and not just because it's hot. Um, uh, I I wouldn't use real estate because I I think that's um, uh, been thwarted as well because of the potential for higher interest rates, bonds, stocks. Um, Yeah, stocks stocks for me would still be an exciting young person's Uh, type of asset class despite the lower returns going forward. There's lots to choose. Uh, There's lots of a difference to make in terms of analyzing uh, various sectors. And so I, I don't know, I I'd pick stocks. I picked stocks in the beginning, but they wouldn't have me. Right. So I, I went down and clipped coupons.
0: Bill Gross, how do us, our listeners and our viewers, and, and I, I love, thank you for the mention of the Bloomberg in your book, I'm Still Standing, where you say you get up in the morning and look at the Bloomberg screen for five hours. I mean, you know, that's a great retirement bill. But uh, <laughs> when you, when you get up in the morning, and even with your caution over the years, you've never been associated with the gloom crew. How should our listeners and viewers respond to typically the Friday data and internet dump of gloom out there on the
2: markets? Well, you should take it very carefully because, uh, you know, Tom, uh, human emotion is is critical in terms of an investor and and attitudes towards markets. Um, You know, I've, been a glass half empty uh, because that's what uh, bond investors are—they have to protect capital. But at the same time, I, Pimco and uh, myself rode the bond bull market from mm-hmm. 1981 all the way down uh, to a few years ago, and that's a very bullish, optimistic type of attitude. In terms of bond prices right. so um I, I i think an investor has to know who they are um and then to to try and apply that uh right. servably to markets
0: bill you're more qualified on this than maybe five or ten guys in the world i've been preaching for the last 15 days that Ukraine is a crisis of tangible assets, commodities, things, as Gartman says, things that fall on your foot like an oil drum, etc. You're the king, some would say, of financial instruments. What's different about the financial system now, given tangible asset crisis versus intangible asset financial instrument crisis like what we saw in 1998?
2: Well, I think certainly uh, liquidity is is different in terms of um, at least Russia's central bank reserves, and I I think that begins to affect uh, other countries as well, and then ultimately it affects investors' attitude. You know, um, uh, momentum, which is a valid alpha generator, meaning um, those that follow momentum Uh, Types of trends have done very well over the past 10 or 20 years as markets have moved up. Um, Momentum is now, of course, shifted the other way. Um, And and so an investor has to be cautious of this ever-increasing trend of higher and higher prices and buying the dips because momentum is going the other way. And so I think financially, that's a key consideration relative to what you mentioned with things.
3: Bill you've had a history of bold bets throughout your career what's your boldest bet right now at this moment?
2: Oh um, very few you know I, I, I'm doing um, I'm doing arbitrage uh, uh, corporate buyouts uh, by Microsoft and Google you know Google announced one just the other day I'm mm-hmm. content to take four or five percent. actually my biggest bet has uh, taken place over the last year I did very well and have done very well in uh, gas pipelines partnerships Uh, there aren't too many of them but uh, they yield eight to nine percent and they're tax deferred check your uh, tax consultant Uh, but um, you know they've gone up uh, as uh, the fangs and the high flyers have gone down and so uh, Mm -hmm. the last six to 12 months have been very good to my uh, foundation.
0: Bill Gross, good to see you. Thank you so much and congratulations on the essays within your book and of course a wonderful new text as well from Bill Gross. I'm still standing. Let us get to the institutional conversation of the day. All institutions react. We wait on the International Monetary Fund and Christina Gorgeva But David Malpass is at the World Bank. To his immense credit, they have not taken down World Bank research on the Russian Federation. But front and center on the front of the page of their website, the World Bank Group is taking quick action to support Ukraine. David Malpass, what do you do this morning?
4: Hi. Good morning, Tom. Well, uh, I'm I'm grateful that our board on Monday uh, passed a major package Monday afternoon, so that money becomes available right away. Meaning, I don't know today or tomorrow. Uh, through means for Ukraine, and that helps them survive as they're as they're fighting uh, <coughs> fighting back against the Russian invasion. Uh, it 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 goes for right. things like food and salaries and doctors that they desperately need. So today, now we look <clears throat> to build a bigger, a bigger, broader package that can begin to think about reconstruction as well. But right now we're focused on refugees, on the region, and on how do you how right. do you hold it together.
0: Do you believe that you can have a relationship with Mr. Putin, the invader, where you can go directly into these, these ravaged cities and provide World Bank support, or are you basically working at the
4: border like the Red Cross? Today, we're working through the Ministry of Finance of Ukraine, which still exists and is, is, is operational. So they're, they're supporting uh, the basic services in Ukraine. We're not working with Russians in Ukraine or with Russians in Russia. We've uh, suspended, we've stopped all of our operations in both Russia and Belarus.
3: David, there's a lot of focus on Ukraine and helping the refugees as there should be. There's also growing focus on nations that rely on Ukraine and Russia for wheat for a lot of the commodities. I'm thinking of Egypt, 86% of their imports of wheat come from Russia and Ukraine. How are you preparing a package to help some of those countries as they deal with the food inflation and commodities inflation more broadly that they haven't seen before?
4: Yeah, this is a huge problem for developing countries in general, and especially the poorest ones. People at the uh, that are that are inland from ports are having a, a great deal of trouble getting food because the supplies were cut off. I spoke with the Prime Minister of Egypt on, uh, on Thursday or Friday last week that Egypt is a major importer from Ukraine, but fortunately, they have storage and their crop will be coming in. So as you look around the world, the key variables here are how can global Global production be boosted outside of Ukraine and Russia, uh, so that would and you know the, the U.S. Uh, and Canada and even Mexico are major potential suppliers both of agricultural products and of energy. So pr- making it productively, rapidly available is going to be one of the key uh, the key responses of the world uh, to this horrible situation that's hitting uh, Ukraine. I have to say on efficiency, there's lots of things that countries can do and we urge. For example, in the U.S., the, the, uh, the efficiency is constrained greatly by the Jones Act, by the ethanol mandates that are hugely, uh, hugely deproductive. They, they cancel production. Uh, and in Europe, uh, they, they have uh, restraints across their economy on what people can do and what they can produce. So lifting some of that would add to the global supplies and help respond to the crisis.
3: When you talk about efficiencies, David, how much are you also talking about car-free days or perhaps restrictions on how food is consumed in certain places?
4: I think everyone can conserve. Uh, what we don't want to see uh, is uh, made is advanced countries hoarding things. It, you know it's incumbent on people to allow their supplies to go into the markets, and that allows them to get to the people that need it the most. That's part of an efficiency gain. Uh, but I, so I, I think there are some. Uh, cost savings that can be done but as we look globally the the biggest issue is how do you really uh how do you really tackle uh the the output that can can be made available by each country for example there's nickel supply shortages the london stock exchange stopped its trading of nickel but indonesia is a big nickel producer so there there are alternatives around the world and those can be ramped up uh ramped up as the world responds the russia situation right now it doesn't look like it will, be, it, will be, it will be a temporary one. It's a, it's a longer lasting uh, set of problems for the world in interacting with Russia on oil, on wheat, on basic minerals, and there need to be supplies elsewhere.
1: You just touched on a bigger, broader question, David, and I wonder if we can finish there, please. The risk of an increase, an escalation, an increase in nationalism, how do we prevent that from happening?
4: it <laughs> I, I don't think I think it's very hard to do that people live in nations and they feel nationalistic and they feel patriotic for their nation what we need to do I think is have a rule of law that's really meaningful uh, uh, I in the in the 80s and 90s I talked a lot about constitutional law for Latin America it was having severe problems forming democracies and it matters a lot what your original statutes are and how you can implement those uh, so worldwide if we keep pushing on transparency, on rule of law, on on people finding ways to resolve disputes without fighting, Uh, that, I think, is is the way forward. Uh, Unfortunately, there arise authoritarian leaders that don't do that. Uh, World Bank is in the middle of trying to have good governance for countries as we work with them.
1: David Malpass, always wonderful to catch up with you, sir. It's been too long. David Malpass there, the president of the World Bank. interview of the day on the American response
0: and particularly the American and NATO response to what we have seen with war in Ukraine. James Trevitas uh, has been a wonderful friend of the show, of course, with his public services uh, in the Navy as a European commander and also at the same time NATO Supreme Allied Commander. Author is 2034. I can't say enough how timely that frightening book is, my book of the summer. I believe it was a year ago. Can't remember, James. Now, James Trevitas, I'm going to talk about Ben Hodges, General. I'm going to talk about Mark Kimmett, General. They have an urgency about urban warfare. Give us the same urgency about naval warfare in the Black Sea. What does Ukraine, Russia look like on water? Uh, Russia dominates the Black
5: Sea and really has for centuries. They've been the dominant power there. If you spin around the Black Sea, Tom, you see Romania, Bulgaria, Turkey, Georgia, Ukraine. But it's Russia is the monster force there. They will continue to dominate it. Uh, Turkey has a chokehold on the Dardanelles, the Bosphorus, the strait that controls access to the Black Sea. But it's going to be Russia's game up there, because that's where their Black Sea fleet is located. Think having the U.S. Navy's Seventh Fleet inside the Black Sea. That's the advantage that <clears throat> the right. Russians have.
0: In your important essay for Blooming Opinion, the single money sentence, is at your time of duty there were 400,000 Americans in service in Europe and that's been whittled down for whatever reason to 100,000. What is your timeline to see a rebuild of American military in Europe? Is it a question of weeks and months or is this going to be long drawn out extended process? Depends on Vladimir
5: Putin. And so far, he is certainly giving us plenty of reason to think we are going to increase our troop levels in Europe. I don't think we're going back to 400,000, the way we were during the Cold War. But look for the U.S. presence to go from around 50,000 to perhaps 70,000 permanently based forward if Putin continues. And more importantly, Tom, you're seeing the Germans and others increasing their defense spending extremely quickly all of that will move troops to the borders of nato the nato alliance will keep russia
3: out when you say the borders of nato admiral are you talking about poland most importantly
5: i think it's poland but also all around the eastern uh, eastern europe so think estonia latvia lithuania romania bulgaria They have either borders on Russia or borders on Russia client states, like Belarus, or, as to the conversation Tom and I just had, borders on the Black Sea. There's going to have to be an upgrade, if you will, in troops forward. The alliance realizes that it's in progress now.
3: Admiral, there's a story today on a Bloomberg terminal that Putin's endgame is starting to look more and more like simply reducing Ukraine to rubble. What do you suggest are the next steps since the sanctions have gone uh, almost as far as they can go at this point, the next steps to try to bring a swift end to this conflict?
5: First, unfortunately, I agree. Uh, When you're the Russian military and you have performed as badly as they have with poor logistics, poor command and control, war criminal behavior, at some point your only tool left is a big hammer. And they're starting to swing that thing hard through Ukrainian cities, uh, trying to make uh, Ukraine look like Syria on the Dnieper River, that's a terrible outcome for everybody and it's war criminal behavior. What we should do about it is Continue the massive sanctions. They will bite. That'll take time. On the military front, continue to supply the Ukrainians with absolutely everything they need, short of our troops going in boots on the ground and fighting. That's a path to World War III level confrontation. But that's more material going into uh, Ukraine. And above all, Let's get these MiG-29 fighters from Poland into the hands of the Ukrainians. It's complicated. I get that. But that, okay. I think, could be a game changer. We've got
0: to stop to show you, General. Uh, Admiral, excuse me. I got the wrong service there. Admiral Stavitis, this is really important. The images right now are the Opera House of 1887 in Odessa. This isn't Normandy where the Germans are shooting from the cliffs. This is Odessa with sandbags and a bunch of Ukrainians. How do we get those jets from Poland? to Odessa to defend against a well-equipped Russian Navy.
5: The polls have said they're willing to turn them over to the NATO alliance, fly them into Ramstein Air Base in Germany, Tom. I think the next stop for them would be put them in Lviv. Um, Lviv is going to stand for a long time. Uh, the Russians are not on some effective high-speed blitzkrieg across Ukraine. Put them in Lviv, build your defense from there, turn them over to the Ukrainians, let the Ukrainians do what they want to do. Let them create a Ukrainian no-fly zone. What
0: is- What does that do to NATO and and NATO being independent? I mean, if we go into western Ukraine and Lviv, that's fine. But the zeitgeist this morning is this is hugely problematic for the NATO you're experienced with. The
5: answer, Tom, is turn them over to the Ukrainians. Do not operate them with NATO pilots. When they are turned over to the Ukrainians, they become Ukrainian jets operating out of Ukrainian bases in western Ukraine. Um, NATO can... Uh, correctly say it is not a belligerent in the combat is it somewhat risky absolutely but at this point go back to those images you were showing a minute ago about two million refugees we're gonna have to take some risk to solve this problem
3: meanwhile on the Russian side Admiral how much are they running out of the fuel and I mean this in every meaning of the word to continue with this battle and I'm talking about this with parts that are getting stalled out as some of these sanctions bites that they need to repair their planes I'm talking about the fact that we have not seen the full Air power of the Russian army, despite Vladimir Putin's uh, resolution?
5: Um, ALL OF THE LOGISTIC FAILURES ARE COMING HOME TO ROOST. Um, RUSSIA DOES NOT HAVE THE KIND OF 21ST-CENTURY MILITARY THAT NATO DOES, THAT THE UNITED STATES HAS. AND YOU SEE ALWAYS, and, AND THIS IS TRUE IN BUSINESS AS IT IS IN WAR, uh, LOGISTICS EAT STRATEGY FOR LUNCH. Um, PROFESSIONALS KNOW LOGISTICS ARE WHAT DRIVE WARS. And so we ought to capitalize on that at the back office end, crushing them with the sanctions, and at the front office end, if you will, the client-facing end of this, by giving the Ukrainians the tools to take apart what they can put on the battlefield.
1: Admiral A. Clinic, as always. James Stavridis there, the former Supreme Allied Commander at NATO.
0: Let us go to an important conversation. She has been fabulous on the microeconomics of oil. And we're going to pause with Amrita Sen, Chief Oil Analyst, Energy Aspects here, with a tour de force coming out of the financial crisis, which was my great mentor, Megden Desai of the London School of Economics. And Amrita, Professor Desai got so upset at a misunderstanding of general equilibrium theory that he wrote a book about it. Tell us about the new oil economics, given this jump condition in price. Is there an oil equilibrium
6: out there this morning? Right now, Tom, and it's a fantastic question that you've asked, there is no equilibrium in the market. And that's why you've seen prices, not just the level, but the volatility that you're seeing. We've moved up $10, down $10, up $10 in a day. I mean, these kind of numbers very much tell you that the market is struggling to find what the true price is.
0: These are incredibly complex things. Don't give us the math of it, Amrita. But which part of our disequilibrium, given massive jump conditions, is the disequilibrium we should focus on?
6: The disequilibrium is originating from the supply side, obviously, because Russia is unable to sell production. Uh, You are going to see some shut-ins, but the reason you see these jumps is absolutely on the demand side. You and I both know that demand is very inelastic. It takes a long time to react to such prices, especially, by the way, governments around the world are reintroducing subsidies. So now suddenly consumers are not even fully exposed to the true price of oil. But that's precisely why you're going to get these big discrete jumps in prices till you get to that point where, okay, demand really starts to hurt and you get back to that equilibrium. The problem is it's searching for that price. It's in the price discovery mode, this market. And whenever it's in price discovery mode, which is very rare, you are going to get huge volatility.
3: Well, Amrita, let's sit on that point for a moment, especially because the Canucko Phillips uh, CEO came out yesterday and said he does think that prices are getting to a place where we are starting to see demand destruction. You do see airlines actually curtailing their schedules to preserve capital, considering that some of the less flown or less popular routes are consuming a lot of expensive fuel. How much will this make a difference on the margins? How uh, how big is that imbalance so that little moves can actually have a big
6: impact? I think the important thing to bear in mind is that we started this year with re- nearly record-low inventories, and that's why we don't really have a cushion, right? So now if we're talking about losing 2, 3 million barrels per day of Russian production, that's how much demand will need to come off. So to your point, yes, we are seeing airlines at the margin curtailing some routes. That's going to help. You are going to lose some demand in Russia as well, in parts of Europe as well, but it's not big enough, especially if you think about Asia, a, not exposed fully because subsidies are coming back. B, they are in a post-pandemic recovery where people are very, very keen to travel both by car and by air. So that's the problem in this cycle where we are in anything but a recessionary environment. We are actually in a very, it's, it's a recovery environment. And then we've hit it with a supply shock.
3: And Rita, given that backdrop, how high could oil prices go based on the sanctions that we've seen already put into effect?
6: I mean, I would say prices can easily go above 150. Now, beyond that, honestly, does become a number. And this is where elasticity has become very difficult to ascertain as well. Every retail price is different. The government's put on taxes. They put on subsidies. So the exposure is not going to be the same. The oil burden, as we call on GDP, is going to be very, very different. But the reason I say it's above 150 and not like 200 or even higher is unlike in the past, it isn't just oil that's rising. It's natural gas. It's food. It's metal. So it's a very inflationary environment overall, which is why oil doesn't need to do all the work, right, to kind of curtail demand. Um, there are other factors that are really pushing consumers to spend less.
1: Amrita, as always, thank you. Amrita there of Energy Aspects.
0: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.